Hey everyone and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast and this week we have a bunch of stuff to talk about. First, Windows will now be forced to be way more open and to let users change a bunch more things thanks to the European Union. We also have AMD teasing some stuff around open source which could be really cool. We have some nice improvements coming to Peertube with a big roadmap. We have some improvements to GTK, so GNOME applications will get better in the future. We have some more details on the Linux kernel 6.7 and a bunch more gaming related news, including more progress for Wine on Wayland. So as always, all the links I use to make this show are in the show notes and all the links to support the show are in the show notes as well. So let's get started with Windows. And so this is a big change coming to Windows 11. Uh, You might know that the European Union has passed what they call the Digital Market Act, which is DMA, and it should come into effect in March 2024. What this thing does basically is regulate what the EU calls gatekeepers. These are companies that have a huge market share in their respective markets that have big user numbers and that generally have the capability to prevent other companies from entering certain markets by bundling various apps and services together, by restricting what users can or can't do on the devices they sell or on the operating systems they sell. So this includes uh, people, well, people, companies like Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google, and the like. And so Microsoft is hit especially hard in the Windows department. And so with the coming into effect of this digital acts market in a few months, they will have to make some changes to Windows 11 because right now it is gatekeeping quite a bunch of stuff. Uh, They obviously have a big fat monopoly on the PC operating system market and they regularly use this to force their own apps and services on their users, including Bing, which is absolutely packed in with the default Windows search tool, but also Microsoft Edge and more. And so with these changes, Microsoft announced that at least in the EU, they will have to be more interoperable. They will have to let users change the pre-installed apps and the default settings. Uh, which means that users of Windows 11 will be able to disable Bing search inside of the main Windows search tool, and they will have access to various providers if providers of search tools develop plugins for the Windows search. So for example, Google could develop something and you could use Google search inside, but obviously it would be preferred to use, well, something else like Ecosia, DuckDuckGo, or whatever. Windows 11 will also have to let you uninstall Microsoft Edge, which comes bundled with Windows, sort of reinstalls itself after various updates. You can't really remove it all that efficiently. Uh, And also it's still the default for various internal links from the OS, uh, which it basically ignores your web browser preference uh, and open stuff in Edge, even though you said you did not want to open stuff in Edge. This will be changed as well. Windows 11 will actually follow your preferred browser, which is insane to point out, but yes, that's something that happens. And Microsoft will also let users uninstall the camera app, uh, Cortana, even though this thing is getting the axe pretty soon, if it hasn't been removed already. Uh, The Photos app will also be uh, removable by users and a few other things. So unfortunately, these changes will be limited to the European economic uh, zone, which is basically the EU plus a few other countries. Uh, 
basically the US and the rest of the world will not benefit from all of these changes. So you will still get a lockdown experience on Windows. It might come to Windows 10 in the future as well, because it is still, as far as I know, a supported OS for Microsoft. So they do have to conform uh, to these regulations for this operating system as well, which is good. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's about it. That's a, a big change coming because it means that Microsoft just cannot do whatever they please, at least in the EU, which is nice. You will be able to finally set a competent browser to replace Edge and have it actually open all the links you want to open. You will be able to replace Bing by other things. And if Microsoft's offerings were like the best ones, super great, very open, very usable, and privacy respecting, it would be very nice, but they are none of those things. So yeah, it's good that users that are stuck on Windows or that prefer using Windows will be able to replace those things. And still on trying to make things more open, the Free Software Foundation Europe, so the European branch of this, uh, wrote an open letter to the EU. Uh, they probably saw that the EU were like doubling down on trying to be a bit more, well, trying to enforce more privacy from big tech companies, uh, working on right to repair, working on removing gatekeeping. And so they jumped on, on this bandwagon uh, and they wrote an open letter to the EU. And basically the goal is to try and push the regulators to force companies to give people more freedom on their devices and the software that they use. This letter has been open for signatures in the past. It's signed by 147 different organizations and by 3,000 people, which admittedly at the scope of the EU is very, very small. Uh, depending on the organizations that signed it, it's not a major impact. But what they ask is interesting. First, they want uh, the EU to force companies to let users choose freely the operating system and the software, so I guess the applications and the backend, that's running on their own devices, which is a, a normal thing to ask for. Like when I buy a computer, why do I have to buy it with Windows? And, and why do I have to like proceed with the company and, and ask them to reimburse? I could just buy the computer without an OS. This should be allowed by default in any store. I should be able to install whatever ROM I want on any Android phone. I should be able to install any OS I want on any device. This is a normal thing. Uh, so I'm glad they're requesting this. The second thing is letting users choose freely their service provider to connect devices to the internet. This is probably tackling some exclusivity deals uh, for certain phones and, and certain internet service providers, I guess. Not sure this still exists very much in Europe. I think it's more a, a US thing. Uh, at least in France, I don't think there's any exclusivity for any phone with any carrier, uh, but this might be the case in other countries. Third, they're asking uh, that companies make sure that all their devices are interoperable and compatible with open standards, which is something that the EU is already working on through the Digital Markets Act, uh, which means that at least the most popular services will have to be interoperable with other various services and applications. And finally, the big ask of the letter is to let, well, is to ask companies to publish the code for all the drivers, all the tools, and all the interfaces needed to operate, repair a device, or install anything else on it. And all of that should be published under a Libre license. 
So the goal of the letter is to try and break down the silos that are created by software or hardware manufacturers and to let people use their hardware exactly how they see fit without any arbitrary limitations. And I am all for it. And the EU is definitely one of the best places to ask for stuff like that. But I personally very much doubt that any of this will be followed by any real measures. We already have some pretty sizable advances on right to repair with uh, old devices uh, that embark a battery having to have a replaceable battery in the near future. Old devices having to use a standardized port, a USB-C, which prompted Apple to actually put USB-C in the iPhone. We already have the Digital Markets Act we already talked about, which will also make, for example, sideloading apps possible on iOS. Apple is working on this. Will only be in the EU, but still. And it also will result in various big services becoming more interoperable. We also have some privacy advances in the EU, where basically tracking users is getting increasingly difficult uh, to sell ads. But I highly doubt that the EU will force manufacturers to open source their code or to leave all bootloaders unlocked. I don't think this is ever happening. It's an interesting letter, it's an interesting push, but I, I hope it will result in some more advances. But yeah, I, I'm not holding my breath for too long for this. And finally, on open source, looks like AMD is planning something. Uh, they've been teasing open standards and open source work for their upcoming Advancing AI event. And while obviously from the name you would think it's just about AI, there are some pretty solid suppositions that it might cover more things than just AI. So their event is planned for December 6th, and on Twitter they shared a post uh, talking about open standards, open source, and generally making sure that AI work and development is done in the open or as open as possible. So this could mean a few things. First, the most obvious one is probably that AMD will add Linux support in open source format for Ryzen AI, which is a dedicated AI engine which is included in their latest AMD CPUs for laptops, at least in some uh, of their CPUs for laptops of the 7000 series. They have basically a dedicated AI coprocessor that for now only supports Windows, will probably be used to power like ChatGPT, Copilot, whatever, however Microsoft calls this thing. Uh, but yeah, having Linux support for that would be nice, if only because you want AI work to be developed as open source as possible and people developing it on Linux have probably a higher chance of developing it as open source as uh, people developing it on Windows. And also having like support for a dedicated coprocessor, it might be built for improving AI workflows, but it could also be used for other things because it's still a processor. It might be optimized for certain tasks, but it can also be used for other things. So having support for this piece of hardware is important for Linux. But there are also suppositions that this is not just that, because why would you make an event just talking about like, hey, we're gonna open source the code and add Linux support for our coprocessor. That's not an event, that, that's like, like a blog post. Uh, so there are suppositions that this could be more than this, and notably that this could concern ROCM, uh, which is basically an open source software stack that lets you use your AMD GPU for a lot of compute tasks. This thing, ROCM, currently doesn't support that many GPUs from AMD, even for from their uh, Radeon Pro range. And it's it hasn't been really all that updated. 
But since AMD mentioned that they really do want to open support uh, for a lot more hardware for ROCM before the end of the year, they mentioned that previously, then it might also be part of this event. Uh, probably also saying that, hey, ROCM will help you with uh, compute tasks, with, with AI workflows. So they will probably be able to attach this announcement to the more general advancing AI stuff because obviously AI is all the rage right now. You want to make an event talking about AI, especially when you're a hardware manufacturer. Uh, you don't want to let your, your competitors take all the focus uh, for this new branch of work. So you're gonna like slot everything you can into the AI bandwagon. And if it's compute tasks, you can always say that, hey, it's for processing uh, uh, various neural networks and various big models uh, for image processing for faces, for example, for deepfakes and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, they're probably going to announce something along those lines. In all cases, whatever they announce, it's open source, it's good news. Personally, I have zero interest in AI-related stuff because it really all looks to be done in a very unethical way with no respect for copyright or licensing. But if that's going to be the next big thing anyway, whatever I think about it, it might as well be as open as possible. And so if it can be used on Linux with open source drivers for that, that's good. Well, at least if AMD's hardware can be used on Linux uh, to work with AI, it's all the better. And if the event also includes compute-related things, then that's even better because that's something I actually use uh, for my own work uh, at the contrary uh, of AI stuff. And now it's time to talk about our sponsor, Thunderbird. Uh, you all know about Thunderbird. It's an awesome email client. We'll talk about it a little bit more in this video as well because they shared a nice post uh, explaining their story and, uh, and how they've come from being a basically dead project to one of the major open source projects with a lot of funding. And if you use Thunderbird in the past, you probably have a memory of a very old interface, not something that you really enjoy using, but their recent redesign has really hit the right spot. It's super customizable. It looks really good, even on Linux, which is nice. Uh, it looks good on KDE, but it also looks good on GNOME. You can even apply like some custom CSS themes on top of it to make it look even more like GNOME. It has a completely customizable interface. They're working on a lot of other projects, including an Android app based on the open source Kmail uh, email client. And they have done an amazing work on this email client. It has replaced everything I used on Linux previously. I used to use GNOME Calendar, GNOME Contacts, and Geary when I used GNOME. Then I used K-Organizer, uh, Contacts, and uh, and Calendar, and K-Mail on, uh, on KDE. And all of those are just subpar when you compare them with Thunderbird in its current iteration. It's just a very good all-in-one solution. You can really tailor it to your needs. If you don't want the calendar, the contacts, you can hide them. If you want to change how which buttons are, are in the header bar, you can. If you want to change the interface density, the layout, there are still all the plugins you can add. It's a fantastic email client. So I left a link to download the Flatpak version of it because yes, it's officially on FlatHub. Uh, if you want to give a shot to the new version. And you can also go to their website to download any version because obviously they're also on Windows, Mac OS, and they have other packaging formats. So I hope you'll give it a shot and thanks Thunderbird for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. And now let's talk about Framasoft and more specifically Peertube. I covered Framasoft in a video a while back. If you missed that one, they're a French collective. They're working 
to try and de-Google the internet. They have a bunch of various tools and services that you can, they're, they're all open source. So you can either self-host them or use their own test instances. And they're all good projects. They basically want to provide a nice suite of tools that you can use to replace the offerings from Google and just be more private online and use open source and free software. Uh, but their major thing is probably Peertube. They, they are the main developers of Peertube. And so they've published a big, nice roadmap for what's coming next to Peertube. And there are some very good things. Uh, Peertube is getting version 6 released before the end of the year. And this one, you might already have seen what it includes because it's already like in the release candidate 6 stage or 6 or 7. And it is bound to become a lot more user-friendly. Uh, it will gain support for video chapters, which means that like on YouTube, you can skip to the portion of the video that you actually want to watch. It will now display thumbnails in the progress bar. As you scrub through the progress bar, you'll see what's actually displayed in the video. Uh, they will let creators replace a video with an updated one, which is something that YouTube doesn't let you do unless you have a giant channel like Linus Tech Tips. They have some kind of, of special treatment there. Uh, but me personally, I don't have access to this. They are also providing a suite of stress tests. So when you build your own Peertube instance, you'll be able to know which configuration is the best for people who have the best experience. They will also provide password protected videos and a bunch of other things. This is all coming before the end of November, so really, really soon. And obviously, you'll have to wait for your instance uh, to update to this. But honestly, seeing as there are so many giant improvements, I think most instances will update relatively fast. But on top of that, they also have big plans for 2024. Uh, they announced that they want to bring the ability to import and export your Peertube account. So if you want to move to another instance, it's easier to do. They want to let creators moderate comments either directly or using keywords. So you could automatically block a comment if it uses certain words. So insults or hateful stuff, you can automatically block that. These are tools that are sorely needed on any platform where you share content because it's your channel, you do whatever you want on it. It's not a democracy. You can decide to block people and to ban certain absolutely horrendous things that always happen online. Uh, for example, Odyssey never really had these tools. And that's part of the reason why I left it because it was impossible to have a civil discourse on this because it was just completely parasited by a lot of hateful people. Uh, Peertube also will let you well, not let you, they will also bring the audio and the video streams into two separate streams, which means that people will be able to only listen to the audio without streaming the video. If you want to save some bandwidth or if you don't have a good enough device to process video, then you can still listen to, the, to, to what you want to listen to. They will also bring a UX redesign after a big audit. They will have a showcase instance of Peertube to show what can be done and how it can work. And the most important thing, which I kept for last for some reason, is the official Peertube mobile app for Android and iOS, which should let people have a much better experience with Peertube because right now you can use like Fediverse clients uh, to watch Peertube, but they're not dedicated to that. And so having a dedicated Peertube app where you can enter the instance you want to follow or the instances you want to access 
and just have one unified feed of videos just like you would on the YouTube app would make a huge difference for people who actually want to use SpiritTube full-time. Complete that with chapters, with more moderation, and a bunch more creator tools, and I think you have a winner. I think PeerTube is in a very good place. Now, all these changes are planned for the whole year of 2024, which means that it's not going to be instant, and it's probably going to be in November or December 2024 that everything materializes. But still, with the release of PeerTube 6, chapters and stuff like that, I think PeerTube will be in a very good place. I'm personally on it. Uh, you'll find a link to it in the show notes uh, for this episode and all other episodes. I'm on the tillvids.com instance. I really enjoy PeerTube, but you have to be honest, it is lacking in a bunch of user comfort things. And so having those features is really, really cool. Now let's go a bit more technical because there's good stuff that will be coming to GNOME applications uh, through an update to GTK. GTK 4.14 uh, gained the addition of graphics offloading. And I am definitely not a master of how things are rendered and drawn on screen, but from what I understand, this thing will let applications use a different widget inside of their app, widgets being like components that you use to build your application. This widget would let you play, for example, a video or render images, but passing it directly to the compositor which means that it's not the app doing the rendering through a third-party library or something and then the compositor having to render what the app tells it to render, it would just pass everything to the compositor itself, which means less overhead and better battery life. And they say it's specifically useful for uh, applications that play video, but also for apps that run, for example, VMs, basically anything when there's something moving a lot on screen, then it's probably a good thing to use this new widget. It will only support Wayland and Linux. They have good hopes to be able to bring this to the macOS builds of GTK, but it apparently will not come to X11 because, well, no one wants to support X11 anymore. Uh, so all these improvements, you better get used to only seeing them support Wayland and never land on X11 because no one wants to do that. Uh, if you're a developer and you're interested in seeing how it works, you can already try it using a snapshot of GTK 4.13, which like, if you don't know the uneven version numbers for GTK and GNOME are the testing releases, the development releases. So we've got 4.13 is the unstable release and 4.14 is the stable. Uh, so you can already give it a shot and uh, maybe it's gonna make a bunch of applications much more useful. Uh, I guess something like a camera app that has to render like you on your on your webcam, uh, maybe something like a video player, like GNOME boxes, they might benefit from all of this and it will give better battery life, better performance. So all nice, very cool to see uh, this software stack getting better. Now let's talk about the Linux kernel. Uh, so first the Linux kernel 6.6 .6 will apparently become this year's LTS version. This is not a surprise. This is what everyone was expecting. What's interesting is that it will get three years of support, not two. Uh, there had been discussions to push, well, to push back, to reduce uh, the window of official support for LTS kernels from six years to two years. But this one won't be supported for just two years, it will be for three, but also not for six, which 
is a sort of in between that is kind of weird. Uh, that's still interesting enough to mention. But what's more interesting is the first release candidate of the Linux kernel 6.7, which looks to be a pretty sizable release as well. 6.6 .6 was already pretty big, but 6.7 looks to be even bigger. First, it adds initial NVIDIA GSP support, uh, GSP being the firmware for NVIDIA cards. Uh, this is added to the Nuvo drivers, meaning that these drivers will get the ability to reclock certain NVIDIA GPUs after boot. Right now, for modern like RTX 20 and, and upwards, uh, RTX 20 series and upwards, basically you boot the card, Nuvo is able to boot the card to get a display signal, but the card is stuck at the frequency it's been using for the bootloader, which is a much, much lower frequency than what these cards are able to achieve, which means that the performance is absolutely horrendous. Being able to reclock the GPU as needed means that you can actually use the GPU as it was intended. So you should get much better performance using the Nuvo drivers. But the Nuvo drivers are still pretty bad. What's interesting with the GSP firmware is that it also lets the NVK driver, which is basically the open source Vulkan drivers for NVIDIA, it lets these drivers actually do something, which is really cool. Uh, it, because all those like Vulkan drivers and OpenGL drivers that are popping up that are open source for NVIDIA GPUs, they're all dependent on the Nuvo drivers to actually access the hardware. So the better Nuvo gets, the better these will work. And so this means that 6.7 might be the first step uh, that people can actually use to have a fully open source stack for NVIDIA GPUs. That's really, really cool. Now the kernel 6.7 will also remove support for the Intel Itanium architecture because it's apparently unused and unmaintained. Uh, there's also support for handling alt mode through DisplayPort, so basically letting you power your device uh, through just a USB-C cable that comes from a display. It's been added to the USB Type-C driver, and the Bcache FS file system also has landed. This is a, let's say new, because it's the first time it has a stable release, but it's been worked on for about a decade. It aims to compete with BetterFS and ZFS with snapshots, compression, and a lot more. Now, the initial tests made by Foronix seem to show slightly lower performance with Bcache FS than with other file system in most use cases, but it's still the first time it's merged in the Linux kernel, so things might get better over time. I am pretty excited personally more for the NVIDIA support. I would love to run my NVIDIA devices with a fully open source stack, even if it's just for a basic test run and I don't end up using them daily, it might be worth a video doing a performance comparison once the kernel is out. Like, let's look at this device with this NVIDIA GPU and see with Nuvo drivers and with the proprietary drivers, how well does it work? Probably going to be the proprietary drivers that perform better, but still going to be an interesting thing. So maybe I'll make a video about this. Okay, now let's talk applications. Uh, now first, the Vivaldi browser is now available on FlatHub and it is uploaded and maintained by a Vivaldi employee, but it is not an official package from the Vivaldi company. I'm not sure, probably Vivaldi Technologies or something. Uh, it doesn't display the official badge on FlatHub for this pack and it clearly mentions that it is not supported by the company yet. 
It is meant to test the waters, uh, to see if there are any issues with this packaging format and Vivaldi, to see if people are interested in it. And maybe later down the line, when it's like good enough, they will make it official. Now, Vivaldi already offers DEBs and RPMs, and there are probably thousands of other packages derived from these, but Flatpak would make it way easier for them to support. They would only have to build the application once and publish it for every distro. It's really easy, uh, better than building various packages for every distro. But apparently the problem with Chromium-based browsers and Flatpak is that the Chromium engine has some problems with the Flatpak sandbox. It tries to do things that the sandbox doesn't allow. Hopefully this gives a nice test bed for these specific issues because Vivaldi might not have a giant market share and probably even less on Linux since it's not fully open source, but it is still used by a lot of people. So if people can test the Flatpak and report issues, it might improve basically how Chromium works with the Flatpak Sandbox, or it might help improve the Flatpak Sandbox as a whole. So it's always nice to see those use cases and those apps coming to Flatpak. Now, still on the web browsers, it looks like Firefox will ship with Wayland enabled by default. Firefox has Wayland support, but you previously generally had to enable it yourself using an environment variable. That's something I had to do on my own computer uh, with KDE. And it looks like the bug that was opened for this has been closed this week. So hopefully we will see this Wayland support enabled by default in Firefox 121. And this will give a much better experience for people on Wayland because it means you're not reliant on X Wayland anymore. So you should have smoother performance, smoother scrolling as well and touchpad gestures to go back and forward, plus just getting rid slowly bit by bit of all the X11 stuff. If you use Wayland, you don't want to use the stuff that is linked to X11. So having Wayland support by default is really good. And we also had an interesting blog post with some cool insights into Thunderbird and how it basically managed to rise from the ashes. Uh, they, they go over basically all the steps in the life of the project, starting from when Mozilla dropped the project in 2012 and it became a community-run thing. The project managed to survive for a few years until it managed to get enough donations to hire three people. There was a developer, someone for, for the infrastructure, someone for managing the community, but it was just way too small to make any significant impact, like the community was huge. They had apparently something like 2 million users and they had a lot of requests, a lot of bug reports, but there was basically no one to put this effort and this interest into a single vision, a single roadmap. Like they tried to implement a few things, but the app failed to build for long stretches of time. And just generally the community requests were ignored. They, they just didn't have enough people to handle 2 million users and all the potential bug reports and feature requests that this can put out. It's a lot of people. Now, finally, they managed to get together, get a new vision and roadmap. They set up a donation appeal page inside the application directly. And as they say, they did it tastefully. It was not like a giant pop-up stopping you from using the app and telling you, hey, if you don't pay, we're going to die. It was explained in a nice way. And apparently this worked incredibly well because the project has now grown back into a major open source project. They hired 29 people today. And so basically the funding problem for Thunderbird seems to be completely out of the way. There is no funding problem for Thunderbird anymore from, from what I can tell, which is 
really cool. And so with all of that funding and all these people, they managed to launch the Supernova redesign, which I've talked about in the sponsor segment of this episode. Uh, and I personally think it's really, really good. Sponsorships aside, I started using Thunderbird again before they even offered uh, to sponsor the channel because I found that the new interface was really, really working well for me. It just suited my needs. And so I'm really happy that they managed to do that because all the other email client solutions that I found on Linux were just really either too limited or way too complex. Like if you used Kmail, if you managed to set up an email account in Kmail, then you're a, you're, you're a good person because wow, that's hard. Now they also have other projects. Uh, they, they are adopting the K9 Mail application, which is an open source Android email client, and they're turning it into a mobile client for Thunderbird with projects to actually sync most of your settings, most of your extensions and, and layouts and tags between all those clients and also between various computers. They also want to have an iOS app, which is going to be coming later. Uh, apparently the, the Android app will be coming in the first quarter of 2024, which is really cool. And it's still going to be open source, which is also really cool. It's just a great comeback story. It's, it was an almost dead project. At the time, no one thought it would survive. No one, well, I thought no one used it, but apparently, yes, a lot of people still used it. But it felt completely dead. Uh, and a lot of distros actually dropped it uh, from their roster of applications, not shipping it by default at all, which was a sign that people thought it was really dead. And so seeing it come back in such a big way with plenty of funding, plenty of ideas, a big roadmap, some cool features, it's really nice. And it shows that open source funding isn't as completely impossible as we thought. And it is really, really cool. Now let's talk a little bit about hardware because Tuxedo, which is uh, one of the main Linux computer manufacturers and full disclosure, a regular sponsor of the YouTube channel, uh, not of this podcast, but of the YouTube channel, they just launched a refresh of their Tuxedo Pulse uh, line, which is the Pulse 14. It's the third generation of this laptop. It's an ultra portable 14 inch laptop. The interesting thing is that it's full AMD now. Uh, it's powered by a newer AMD CPU, the Ryzen 7 7840HS, and it comes with the integrated 780, no, 780M graphics, which, like, it looks like it's a dedicated GPU, but it's not. It's an integrated uh, GPU part, but it's pretty damn powerful. And it also comes with 32 gigs of RAM, which, unfortunately, and for once for Tuxedo, is soldered. Uh, Tuxedo generally never sells devices with soldered RAM, and on this one, they do, which I think is a step back. I'm not sure if they listen to the podcast. <laughs> I hope they won't stop sponsoring me for saying this. But yeah, I'm not sure that's a great step. I wish they didn't do that. It's not a good trend. Uh, let people change the RAM, please. It also comes with 500 gigs of SSD, but you can obviously add more when you purchase the computer. It has a 3K display, which is uh, like 2880 by 1800 or something, or something along those lines. It's a 16 by 10 display. It runs at 120 Hertz. It has a matte coating, which is always the case with tuxedo laptops, uh, generally anti-glare coating as well. And the IO seems really solid. You've got two USB-C ports that support power delivery and DisplayPort 1.4a. No Thunderbolt because AMD, Thunderbolt don't really get along. Uh, 
still pretty much an Intel technology. So yeah, no Thunderbolt on AMD on most laptops. You also get two USB-A ports, you get HDMI 2.0, you get a 3.5 millimeters audio jack, you get a micro SD card slot as well. So pretty damn decent IO. You also get a 60 watt hour battery that should give you about nine hours of real world use over Wi-Fi. You can already pre-order it uh, now for, I think it's uh, 1,111 euros, uh, VAT included, so it might be a bit cheaper if you buy it from somewhere else where there's no VAT, I guess. Uh, but in France, it's that price. It's, I think it's the same chassis as the stuff like the, the, the Slimbook, um, I think it's the Slimbook Pro X14. Uh, it's a laptop I used for a long while, and I think it's really solid. It's a very decent chassis, uh, keyboard is nice, it's a good laptop. So I, I think it's about the same uh, chassis as this one, and it's a pretty solid one. I, I should have a review unit anyway, so you can expect a video about this laptop on the YouTube channel in the near future. I thought it still was worth a mention because it's a full AMD laptop and people are all, always requesting those. So yeah, here you go, full AMD laptop now. Okay, now let's finish this episode with the gaming news. Uh, so first we have the release of the Steam Deck OLED. Uh, I mentioned it in the previous episode. You already know everything about it if you're interested in it. It's, it basically replaces the higher-end SKUs of the LCD deck. It's got its OLED display refreshing at 90 Hz. It's a bit bigger, 0.4 inches uh, than the LCD model. It supports HDR. It has an updated AMD APU, which has much better battery life especially since the battery size has been increased as well. And there are plenty of other tweaks to the sticks, to the feeling of the device, to the buttons. Uh, it, it's just a much improved deck with better battery life. You can already buy it now from Valve's website. Hopefully it wasn't sculpted to oblivion by people uh, and you can buy one. I personally won't be buying one, but yeah, it's available now. If you want one, uh, move fast because I'm pretty sure this thing is gonna sell out really quickly or will be like bought by plenty of scalpers to try and resell online for insane prices. We also have a stable update to SteamOS that, well, first adds support for the Steam Deck OLED, of course, but it also brings HDR settings, uh, which you can configure when you plug in an external display that supports HDR to your Steam Deck. The LCD version of the Steam Deck now emulates the sRGB color gamut, and you can even enable variable refresh rate if the external display that is connected to your Steam Deck supports it. Now, additionally, they have disabled compositing in some scenarios because this should improve performance in certain games and the latency when using the device should be improved. They updated the firmware of the Steam Deck through this update as well uh, because you now have uh, a voltage offset settings which lets you underclock everything and the Steam Deck Docs firmware also got an update to support the aforementioned variable refresh rate. And if you use the desktop mode of your Steam Deck, you will also get an update to the Arch Linux base and to the KDE desktop. So you'll get the latest uh, KDE, um, how is it called? KDE gear compilation and the KDE desktop with the latest point uh, bug fixes, probably 27.8 or 0.9. Not sure where we are at. I think it's 27.8. So nice big update for the Steam Deck. Whether you use the LCD model or you just pre-ordered or ordered the OLED model, really cool to see this OS getting better and better and especially with HDR and variable refresh rate support, which if I'm not mistaken, 
run with Wayland because Gamescope, the compositor for SteamOS, runs with Wayland. So this is also a nice big test implementation that can be maybe reused on our generic Linux desktop to support all of this. And we're going to talk about Wine to finish. Um, not, not Wine the beverage, Wine <laughs> the thing that lets you run applications. The Wine Wayland driver is making good progress again with improved high DPI support. Now this new let's say, delivery of the Wayland support in Wine, now adds support for scaled displays. Although it doesn't support per monitor scaling yet, it looks like you have to set it yourself in the Wine DPI settings. So it's not fully automated yet, but it does support it, which is cool. And the next part uh, of this Wayland support is already underway with Vulkan support being enabled for Wayland. So with all of this native Wayland support for Wine looks to be in a very, very solid shape. We might soon be able to get rid of X Wayland to play games, or we can maybe even plan to get rid of X11. If the only thing like limiting you from moving to Wayland was gaming, then once Wine with native Wayland support comes out, I think you can get rid of X11 entirely, and that's really cool. And you will also get a nice big performance boost in the process because whether you're currently relying on X Wayland, you're losing performance compared to using running the game natively. And if you're running the game on X11, Wayland does offer better performance because it has been tested for a few games that support Wayland natively already. And those games run better under Wayland than they do under X11. So it's pretty exciting news. And finally, we had the release of Wine 8.20, which should be the final release for the Wine 8 series. Uh, the next one should be Wine 9.0. Uh, this one comes with more direct music API work, and it apparently now can do protocol associations. Uh, it can export them to Unix desktop, so I guess when you set a specific app to open specific file types or protocols, your desktop will follow that even if it's an app that runs with Wine. I thought it already did that, but maybe I just misunderstood what that meant. There were also 20 bugs that were fixed this week, including for Max Payne, for Warframe, for Neverwinter Nights 2 on, on GOG, uh, not the Steam version, and a few other things. So, so as I said, Wine 9.0 should be the next release, which should also mean that Proton 9 should come out with a lot of bug fixes and a lot of performance improvements based on all that work. Now, I can safely say that Wine and Proton are in an amazing state these days, and with the Wayland support coming together, and all these regular constant stream of more API work, more bug fixes, I think we're looking at a very, very bright future for Linux gaming, and I couldn't be happier to be a Linux user these days. So thank you all for listening to this episode. Uh, this will conclude it. As always, if you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, all the links are in the show notes. If you want to support the show, all the links are in the show notes as well. And if you want to check out our sponsor Thunderbird, there's also a link just for that. So thanks for listening. And I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye. <laughs>